Good morning, everyone. This is Danny Haifang for another episode of Cold War Brew Podcast. Today, we will be talking about anti-Asian racism. Uh, I just did a panel uh, with a really good uh, guests, Amanda Yee of Radio Free Amanda. We had Carl Za of uh, Silk and Steel Podcast, Zhang Yu, the red communist rapper, and uh, we did that on May 6th, so I thought it would be good to talk about anti-Asian racism with all of you as a follow-up to that conversation. So I already got a caller in the queue. I'm just going to speak for about 20 or so minutes on this topic, and then I will get to callers. But with that said, I just want to first say that... Uh, you know, yesterday was actually quite a momentous day, not just because it was my birthday. There are two really interesting, I think, and related events that happened on May 7th. Uh, 68 years ago, Vietnam uh, kicked out the French successfully uh, in the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. And that was a real turning point in the liberation struggle in Vietnam against colonialism and imperialism and, and really did set the stage for actually U.S. intervention as the U.S. started to back France covertly uh, not too long after the end of World War II, actually beginning in 1950. But with that said, it was a huge moment and uh, the victory of Vietnam's independence movement and movement for socialism uh, marked uh, itself closer to uh, the promised land. So, that happened, but unfortunately, when I turned nine years old, something I didn't even know when I was nine years old, I don't know how much uh, real coverage it got in the corporate media at the time, but on May 7, 1999, the U.S.-NATO alliance was already engaged in a horrific bombing campaign of Yugoslavia. And in Serbia, Belgrade, the U.S.-NATO alliance actually bombed the Chinese embassy, and that killed three Chinese journalists. Uh, and to this day, it marks a really dark day in U.S.-China relations and uh, just the history of imperialism. And it's one of those moments that shows, I think, how dangerous right, the United States is as a, as a warmongering state. And it's something that we should remember as a key uh, a moment in history that, that really demonstrates what the system is all about. But with that said, you know, to the topic at hand, we're talking about anti-Asian racism. And so many of you may know that since the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been an explosion, right, of recorded quote-unquote hate crime attacks, uh, violence against the people of Asian descent, South Asian descent, anyone who's associated with Chinese, especially anyone who's considered related to or connected with China, uh, they have been attacked uh, in the streets, uh, especially in New York City, but across metropolises in the United States, San Francisco. Uh, there have been many horrific attacks, even just the last few years since uh, COVID-19 emerged on the scene at least an awareness in March of 2020, there have been uh, tens of thousands of attacks. There have been many deaths. A lot of the targets of the violence have been elderly women, have been working class Chinese, and 
Asian people, and uh, it's 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 just a really really disgusting phenomenon that has been spoken about as if it's new, but it isn't new. Uh, the the racism that uh, people of Asian descent, Asian Americans, have faced in the United States is a long history that actually predates this new Cold War that I speak so much about. It goes back all the way before the first Cold War. It goes all the way back to the 19th century when the Western imperial powers were attempting to carve up China, forced a migration crisis, which led to a, a huge wave of migration of Chinese laborers to the United States and to the West. And in the United States, there was the emergence of yellow peril racism, uh, lots of violence against uh, Chinese laborers. Uh, Chinese people, just as black people were, were targeted for lynching um, to a lesser extent, but a lot of the violence actually surrounding Chinese laborers at that time was directed at immigration law. So there was a lot of deportations, there was a lot of attempts to capture and send out uh, and exclude uh, Chinese laborers from the society. It was really a way to keep wages down. And this is really the root of the anti-Asian hate. This, the so-called uh, Stop Asian Hate Movement doesn't really talk about it, but this is really the root of it, is in the massive wave of migration that the opium wars caused and the subsequent division of China into spheres of influence and just the utter poverty and humiliation that uh, Chinese people still talk about, especially on the mainland, that that created lots of migration, happened out of the opium wars and led to the West creating, the United States in the lead, creating this uh, extreme uh, dehumanization of Chinese people and uh, Asians in general. And this actually, uh, in terms of policy, right, uh, many people may not know that people just from Asia generally, from the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1886 all the way into 1924, were actually not even allowed to migrate to the United States. So some of you may not know that, but uh, that's a fact. And then uh, this anti-China hysteria, this uh, racism toward Chinese, it really, and Asians in general, really took on uh, new heights when the United States began its Cold War against China in 1949. Then in 1950, the U.S. invaded Korea, and that led to a whole new litany of anti-Asian racism. There was an entire language created out of that war by the U.S. military to dehumanize uh, the people of Korea and the people of the region. And actually so much so that you even had the murderous Douglas MacArthur uh, telling Harry Truman that this has to stop, right? That this racism has to stop because it's making the United States look bad on the world stage. Of course, this during, during the Cold War when uh, there was competition with the Soviet Union. So with that, and then the war on Vietnam, right, this language of racism only continued to heighten. So that's a little bit of a brief history. But in the current moment, a lot of the, I think, intensified, invisible anti-Asian racism, it's always been there. And I, I myself personally have experienced it over the course of my life, uh, growing up in a multiracial city, uh, in the Boston area, just the, the ways in which 
people, young people, even teachers that I had, you know, view Asian Americans, right? Either you're the model minority or you're the chink or you're the gook or whatever. I mean, that was just a really big part of my history. So in any event, right, it's always been there, but now it is intensified. Now you have thousands of direct attacks that are being documented across U.S. cities and uh, this has been spurred on by this corporate media onslaught against China, this new Cold War that has uh, fueled it, right? The U.S. foreign policy establishment, the ruling class, they're fueling this racism as a way to both scapegoat China for the COVID-19 pandemic, but also to uh, create an atmosphere where more and more people will support war by opposing China and by essentially uh, hating China. Uh, if you can garner enough hatred toward China, then you essentially, the United States can do whatever it wants. And that's really the purpose of it. So it's been wall to wall, the corporate media coverage. Every day, there's a negative story about China. And a lot of it centers on making people feel as though they are being, quote unquote, threatened by China. So the more that you talk about, right, Shanghai lockdown being XYZ, the more that the corporate media talks about how China is doing terrible things on in the global stage economically, being aggressive all around the world, all of these talking points. And then, of course, there was even Joe Biden, right, really fit into this. The Democrats are supposedly less anti-China, but they fit into lab leak theory, they fit into this whole COVID origin story, right? That really targets China as being the source of the COVID nineteen pandemic, which is not, uh, which is not accurate. You know, it's not proven, but nonetheless, it is these narratives, right, that are swirling about every single day in the Economist and Foreign Policy magazine, the New York Times, CNN, you name it. Every time China is mentioned in the corporate media, it is negative. Every time that Joe Biden, his Raytheon, a former Raytheon board member, uh, Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, every time Antony Blinken, Secretary of State, every time they open their mouths, it's anti-China. And so that has had a huge effect, right? Because we all know about Donald Trump and we all know how Donald Trump and his administration really – helped openly escalate this anti-China sentiment and this anti-Asian racism, right? Calling COVID-19 the China virus and constantly talking about China being a threat and uh, doing so very openly in press conferences and the like. The Biden administration has been less open, supposedly, but in key moments like in Anchorage, Alaska in 2021 of March, right? In key moments we've seen, and now I think what the State Department has done is they've eliminated the language in their uh, reporting, right? In, in the way that they talk about Taiwan, they've eliminated the language saying that they recognize uh, one China policy. And so the Joe Biden administration, even though it's supposedly less open about being anti-China, has not, has not done anything except antagonize and fuel the policy sentiment, the policies, and and the language, right? This aggression, this competition, that China is really the target and threat 
the, the primary target of the United States and the biggest threat to the United States. And, and that hasn't helped anything. That is only worse than the situation. You had the, you've had the CIA director, William Burns, on multiple occasions say that China is the biggest, quote unquote, threat to U.S. interests, right? So over and over and over again, you have China being targeted as an enemy to the United States, and that leads to racism, right? That's the relationship between war and racism, dehumanizing the uh, people of a country and the governments of targeted countries in order to meet foreign policy objectives. If you do that, then uh, perhaps you can have a public sentiment that will support these objectives. And right now, we see that these anti-Asian attacks have run parallel to, right, have really correlated with this declining public opinion toward China and the United States and the West, right? Most countries in the Western world, the United States being at the center and Australia being at the center, these two countries have the lowest uh, opinions of China. You have uh, two-thirds to nearly four-fifths of people in any given poll, uh, Gallup, right? Uh, Pew, look at these polls and you see that somewhere between two thirds and four fifths have a negative public opinion of China. And they believe China is the biggest threat on the world stage. And that is a huge problem, right? That is really why we see this happening. We see people being attacked on the streets, the elderly, women, working people, right? Just because the U.S. has these foreign policy objectives toward China, right? They have this new Cold War. They need to militarily encircle China. They need to sanction China's tech industry. They need to play geopolitics and saber rattle around Taiwan. Uh, the United States foreign policy establishment right, needs to pump Raytheon and Lockheed Martin and all these military contractors with billions upon billions of dollars, right? The vast majority of the military budget going to them. Uh, uh, China needs to be targeted in this way. And so this racism plays a really fundamental role, a really important role. And so we had a panel on my channel, my YouTube channel, The Left Lens, with you know Carl Za, Xiang Yu, Mandy Yi, uh, really uh, prominent you know podcasters' voices on the left among uh, the Chinese community uh, in order to talk about this, and uh, we made we made these connections right because uh, they're connections that need to be made because it's right in our face all of the time, right? Amanda Yi she tweeted out. There was a Chinese delivery worker in Queens who was killed just a few days ago in uh, the beginning of May, May 2nd, or maybe it was the day before, the night before that, May 1st. He was killed. He was delivering Chinese food and the New York Post, uh, and this is just how it is. This is how it's covered. The New York Post literally put in their article that the man may have been killed in a simmering beef over duck sauce. So you have the corporate media literally making jokes about someone being killed, right? That uh, Yan Jiwan, who was the person who was killed, was just dehumanized by such a disgusting, a disgustingly racist joke right in, uh, it is a right-wing rag, the New York Post, but it is a well-read right-wing rag, right? So you have this 
just open, uh, open uh, anti-Asian racism in the uh, you know in the corporate media, and it, and this is you know it may not be as open as what the New York Post published there, but it's everywhere. It's all over the corporate media, right? There's dog whistles everywhere, whether it's in the way that the United States is media. Uh, criticizes and makes up things out of whole cloth about China, right? I mean, we, it, it's it's truly wall to wall, and so it's important to remember the roots, okay? And the roots of this, right, are in the uh, long history of racism, prejudice, discrimination against people of Chinese descent beginning in the 19th century, right? You had a huge massacre in Los Angeles in 1871, right? A huge massacre of Chinese workers and laborers there uh, that was part of this, right? It was literally a mass lynching. Um, It was a huge mob that uh, essentially chased uh, uh, the Chinese laborers out of the area there were hangings. There were at least 18 Chinese people lynched that day in 1871. Um, and so, you know, this is this is the history. This is the history. This is where it starts. And then, of course, the U.S. started a nuclear war against China multiple times. I think we have in the chat that, um, and it is true, I want to shout out to the person in the chat who talked about MacArthur uh, prepared to invade Taiwan in 1951. This is also true. Uh, And also in this time period between 1951 to 1959, uh, during the Korean War, uh, you had, and this is revealed by uh, Daniel Ellsberg, in his blatant violation of the Espionage Act, intentionally violated it in order to get this information out, uh, and this just happened, this was within the last year and a half, revealed that the United States was planning nuclear war on China. So from the October 24th massacre in Los Angeles, which killed more than 17 uh, Chinese men and boys lynch in a lynching in Los Angeles, till now, uh, or, 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 you know, all the way up until now with these Violent with this violence, these murders that are happening of people of Asian descent. Uh, I mean, this is an indictment on the long history of, of anti-Asian racism. Something you know that I've experienced in my lifetime, especially when I was younger, uh, where this wasn't even really talked about in the '90s. I mean, no one was talking about anti-Asian racism, although it was pretty obvious that there was racism, right? Uh, but the political situation is, it was different. The United States is now mired in crises. It is falling behind economically. It is losing it is losing its hegemony just out of its own contradictions. And so China, a country on the rise, a socialist country on the rise, a country alleviating poverty, advancing technologically, surpassing the United States in nearly every uh, area of high tech, leading the way in renewable energy production and consumption and investment 
we can go on and on and on, right? The ways that China's COVID-19 pandemic response has been far superior, right? And then just the sheer fact that the China will be a bigger economy within the next decade or so, probably even before then, than the United States. So the ruling class is the writing on the wall. And anti-Asian racism is just one of the many weapons that the United States and its partners are using to try to fuel what it sees as a containment policy, a really dangerous containment policy. So uh, with all of that said, right, we have these attacks happening almost weekly, right? There's almost another attack, especially here in New York City where I am. It's just, it's absolutely horrific. It is disgusting. But one thing that's always left out is this foreign policy conversation, not many people on the political spectrum are willing to talk about this across it, right? And when they do, it's usually on the wrong side, I have to say. And that's just the, the reality of the situation. The reality is is that not many people want to talk about how this rampant racism, this Asian hate, as it's called with a quote-unquote stop Asian hate movement, it's not just something that comes out of people's heads. It's not just, uh, it, it doesn't just arise from, uh, the sky, right? Or, or, or fall from the sky. That didn't happen. It doesn't happen. It's the same thing with Ukraine and Russia, right? We're all talking about, okay, you got to look at the context of the Ukraine crisis. You got to see how the United States and NATO escalated things to the point where it uh, essentially created the scenario that we're seeing, uh, with regard to Ukraine and Russia. Well, the same thing goes for anti-Asian racism. It's how we should be thinking about everything. We should not be looking at things outside of historical context. We can't understand this new Cold War, this the way that the United States is saber-rattling with China, the way that it propagandizes against China, militarizes against China, the way that it economically uh, tries to maneuver to undermine China. We can't understand any of that without understanding 1949 revolution in China, without understanding the U.S.'s first Cold War as a war on socialism. We can't understand what's going on now without understanding that. And we certainly can't understand the racism that uh, Chinese people, Asian Americans are experiencing across the United States and the West without understanding the centuries-long history, the century-and-a-half-plus-long history of U.S. and Western interventionism in that region. You can't do it. You can't understand it. You're just going to constantly recycle this reformist uh, uh, narrative and effort and all these reformist efforts, right, which are counterproductive, getting more police in the streets. That's a big demand by a lot of the so called stop Asian hate folks. And it's not helpful. Uh, what all that does is it creates a more militarized society, one that already targets uh, people of color, but especially black people to a, a higher degree than anyone else, right? So you don't fight racism, as Fred Hampton said. You don't fight racism with more racism. You fight it with solidarity, and you fight it with socialism. And uh, we need to understand the history. The only way we can do that is understand the history and let the history actually guide us uh, in how we behave in the present. And so that same goes to anti-Asian racism. We have to remember the way that Chinese people were lynched as laborers, low-wage laborers, in order to replace uh, free, formerly, uh, uh, formerly enslaved, free black labor, right? It was a way to drive down wages. It was a way to build the capitalist infrastructure in the United States that motivated the U.S. 
super exploiting Chinese laborers and then enacting a regime of violence against them as a form of social control, which is what racism always is. It's a form of social control to ensure that workers can be exploited to an even greater degree than they would be otherwise. That is that is the point of racism. And that's the point of racism in this new Cold War as well. It's a way to ensure that people are not organizing against the bosses, against uh, the rich, against the military contractors, against Wall Street. It's a way to ensure that they're blaming China for their problems, right? That they're blaming China for their economic and political maladies instead of the fat of of the homegrown ways in which that these problems have arisen. So with that said, though, I want to have a conversation with all of you for the next 20, 30 minutes. I have Sean in the queue. If anyone else wants to participate, please do just get in the queue uh, as I take callers. But Sean, I will let you in. You were actually here before this started, so you are now able to speak. Um, Hello. Hey, Danny. Happy birthday. Thanks for taking my call. Hmm, Thank you. So I wanted to thank you for bringing up this topic because I think it's a lot more important right now than a lot of people give it credit because as I'm sure you know and all the listeners know, the United States dollar is collapsing all over the world and China's kind of at the forefront of that. And it's kind of seeming like World War III is inevitable at this point because we have people talking about nuclear war mm. blatantly on television right now, and it's it's terrifying. And like you said, historically, you know, racism has been used to sell every war that we've been in. And I don't think it's talked about enough how dangerous the kind of like soft racism of the left is mm. like people on the left have this like sense of cultural superiority and like this bizarre savior complex where they think like us going in and dropping bombs on people is going to be like uh some sort of saving grace. Like it's really, really bizarre. Mm. And, um, you know, you see guys like, like Sam Harris, who, who people will say he, he's on the left for whatever reason, advocating this like crazy violence that has killed literally millions of people mm. all, all over the world. And, um, you know, this, this is just getting more and more dangerous by the day. Like you, you the the dollar has never been more vulnerable. The I mean, the power structure in this country has never been more vulnerable. And these people are getting back into a corner. And, uh, you know, a lot of this lays at the feet of culture and art in this country and people on the left. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't even understand how racist they are. I mean, they don't even understand. And I think it's, it's a lot easier to, kind of point to the racism uh, against Arabs because that's who we've been in conflict for the most part in most of our lifetimes. But I mean, even people on the left, they look at those people like savages. Mm. I mean, it's just, 
it's it's just assumed that all these people are uh, anti-woman, anti-civil rights, and all that stuff. And uh, it's it's really 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 dangerous because we're seeing people on the left who were calling who've been spending the last what eight years calling everybody a Nazi. Now they want to give missiles to Nazis. Mm-hmm. It's really bizarre and it's really really dangerous. And we need a strong anti-war movement in this country. Or man, I mean we. <laughs> We might not have a future for humanity, like literally. It's yeah. it's crazy. Yeah, Sean, you're exactly right. And um I definitely want to encourage other people to join the queue, join the conversation, but you know, I'll definitely let you respond after I um I uh you know, I, I just I respond to your I mean those are all really good points. Uh, you know. I mean that's that's what's so urgent about this situation and in these 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 topics like anti-Asian racism. It's not this is not moralistic as much as of course I would oppose racism. Uh, I guess in a, a moral sense, it's just being abhorrent to just what it means to be a human being. But uh, this is this is about politics and this is about the ways in which politics are shaping up and the ways in which we have to understand and and really uh, take these issues seriously for us to uh, to stop what could be a, a real humanity uh, ending catastrophe which would be a a, a, a world war 3 scenario and you were talking about the soft racism on the left, and and I think there's just so many things we could say about that because, uh, to me, it uh, it it really impacts from if you want to call the left, right? And I don't consider liberals the left, but if we're gonna just clump the left because there are some connections that much of the left have with each other, from the farthest right neoliberals on the so-called left to even the uh, much of the socialist stuff, one thing that they have in common is that they tend to look upon countries that are targeted by imperialism with this inferiority complex or this superiority complex. And they look at these countries as inferior because of the ways in which this racism has been internalized and propagandized. So effectively, they they tend to just repeat Department of State narratives and uh, do the dirty work, do the dirty ideological work for the war machine. And that is that is not, you know, that was definitely true and a big problem and still is with, let's say, examples like Venezuela and Syria, right? You have a lot of that around uh, the smaller countries that are targeted by imperialism. But now that you have bigger countries, now they have countries that are on the rise and are genuinely, China doesn't see itself as in some sort of zero-sum competition with the United States, but neither does Russia, and they never have. That's not the point. The point is, is that their rise on the world stage, just their ability to make progress in key areas, especially on the economic front, and this is uh, the truest and, and the most true with China. So that in and of itself creates what I think an even bigger incentive among what I would call chauvinist leftists to jump on the anti-China bandwagon because it is so easy 
to cultivate attention and audience clicks, all of that by giving room to what is something that has been digested as fact, right? Anti-China narratives have been digested as fact by so many people in the United States and across the West that it's so easy to jump on this bandwagon, no matter how destructive it is. It's almost like that consideration doesn't come into play, that it's all just opportunism. And what it leads to is it leads to a very difficult environment to talk about this topic right here, anti-Asian racism. It's a a difficult environment uh, to talk about such a thing and to uh, get the word out about it and to have uh, people even on the left pay attention in a way that's productive, in a way that actually moves us to a strong, as you said, peace movement. Uh, The same goes for just this general sort of rift, right, that the United States has created with China. Overall, it's really hard to talk about the policies of this new Cold War, to talk about why this is happening in a way that is uh, logical and just makes sense given the geopolitical situation uh, because there is not a lot of incentive to do that because of the ways in which the propaganda has been so effective on the general population and even on the left. So this soft racism, this just casual embrace of the imperatives and the policies of the war machine uh, certainly has worsened uh, the overall situation politically and and we have to fight back and continue to push back against it. But, um, you know, sometimes this delays, I don't know if there's any other callers. Uh, I think the Android app is still quite buggy. So what I, so sometimes I don't see uh, new callers in the queue. Um, but if there is not, I can let Sean in. Um, so Sean, I don't know if you have any, uh, well, Sean, I'll let you respond and then I'll go to the next caller. Uh, sh- if you're there, Sean, you can speak. If you, if you have nothing to say. Oh, there you are. Sorry, my mic got turned off. It's it's kind of uh, disheartening, like, how much of an uphill battle this feels like because, you know, everything you know about these other cultures as an American is is so distorted from schooling, which is which is the obvious one that, that most people point to. But, I mean, you go and talk about movies and, like I said, just like culture and art, and it's just every – I feel like these people on the left, like their heart is in the right place and they want to do the right thing and they, they want to help. But I feel like maybe the, the best thing that we could do right now is one, like I said, like have an anti-war movement, but two, but, uh, two just to, to celebrate like the culture of, of Asians and, and other places. Cause it's really, the history and and the and the philosophy and the religion and all that stuff is really just so fascinating and i feel like if it was presented to people i mean through in in some ways it is you know like there's buddhists in this country and people practice yoga and you know they they consume yeah. uh like anime and stuff and i think that's really like the best way to try and fight this stuff is to try and give people like a, a more like 
you know, just to humanize these people. And I mean, they're not like, I don't know, man, it's, it's crazy, but it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's going to be a struggle. Yeah. Well, th- well, thanks for your contribution. I'm going to um, get to Joshua. Actually, he's waiting in the queue. There's also someone else. I believe it was a uh, uh, radioactive comrade. But Joshua, you're up next. If if the other person, I know there's another person who's in the queue. If you want to come back, please do. But Joshua, you're up. Well, I didn't want to be up. Uh, no. <laughs> I wanted to have more time to formulate my thoughts on this uh, regarding, uh, I guess I was on a show earlier this week and uh you know, they were definitely not, I would say, extreme right in their perspective, more libertarian. But, you know, there was a lot of anti-China sentiment uh, and turning away from Russia and saying, hey, Russia isn't the threat. China really is. Mm-hmm. And I kind of came back at him and just said, you know, I'm this is just fear mongering on <laughs> in another form. Like it's the same side of the same evil coin that the U.S. keeps spinning. Um, which is we got to go to war to get the things we want for our people. And now that, you know, we have parity with two superpowers and in fact, they're beating us in key areas of technology mm-hmm. and we don't have energy sovereignty. You know, it's really easy to whip up the fear of Americans is uh, they're coming over here to get your land and oil. We better produce more oil so that we can be the benefactor to the world, the world savior again. And it's just this puritanical mm. bullshit. I'm sorry, it's Sunday. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is calling, so uh, uh, you're I mean, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, it's not helping any of us. Like, I'm not less anxious, less depressed, less rage-filled. Well, but I don't want to go to war and I don't want my sons or my daughters. I don't have daughters of my own currently, but I mean, I don't want them to have to consider whether or not we're doing this again. And ultimately, I don't want to have to count on some idiot not being an idiot and pushing the wrong button at the wrong time. And I'm not talking about the nuclear button. It's just, I mean, it can be anything you hit the wrong building and all of a sudden decides, hey, we're going to escalate really big now. But the U.S. is protected from all of this because we're a fucking country away. And they know they're not coming over here. So it's Ukraine. Here, be a proxy war for us. You're a pawn. Congratulations. There's been many pawns before. Um, and, and now, you know, it's right next to Poland. And that's the Carpathian Forest. So that's like the land of vampires and shit. Like they will unleash hell. Um, so I'm not ready for that yet. And I don't want my children to have to consider it. I didn't think they'd have to be considering it again after everything that we've done from a technological perspective to be able to feed the world and to have equity and parity. But instead, we're fighting wars for fucking oligarchs that nobody fucking cares about. And we do need some guillotine soon, um, in my humble opinion. Hmm. Yeah, no, thanks for your for your contribution. I mean, I it's true. It's it's uh it's it's bad i mean what what you describe is all true right that the uh, and, and i think you know the libertarian question is so interesting because i think that there is this understanding that libertarians because some libertarians ascribe to a broad peace message that somehow this makes them you know across the board necessarily friends to peace 
But it's a lot more complex than that. I mean, the libertarian ideology has a long history rooted in uh, the uh, most uh, kind of rapacious um, and, and unmitigated and unrestrained capitalism that we've seen in the world. Actually, you know, I know a lot of libertarians. I've traveled with libertarians. Uh, I unfortunately went to China with uh, more than a few libertarians. So it's quite a popular ideology, actually. And, you know, uh, I've listened to what they've had to say on not just China, which ascribes to a lot of what uh, the caller was saying, what Josh was saying about um, uh, the anti-China sentiment, uh, but also just on like, who who do they really look to for guidance? And a lot of it is like uh, Milton Friedman, right? These like extreme sort of, uh, figures who are all about just unrestrained capitalism and giving business, big business, all the freedom in the world to do whatever they want to do. And they say it's because it's to give everyone individual choice. But uh, there's a, if you ascribe to someone like Milton Friedman, then you are actually advocating for uh, just this uh, shock therapy kind of austerity and neoliberalism and privatization, which um, is just so harmful. And so uh, libertarianism, you know, the, I'm not surprised. I'm, I'm not surprised that anti-China sentiment is across the board there. I, I've seen it. And they fall in right into the establishment's wedge theory hands, you know, the, and, and predictably so, because it's it's the only it's the only way that libertarians who say they're for peace but hate China for reasons uh, that are many, uh, but especially because of China's socialist base, its political uh, uh, system as a socialist system and uh, and especially also because China um, is like a non-white country, a sovereign non-white country that is a socialist country. I mean, because of that, China is seen as this huge threat across the board, but libertarians have many reasons to really dis- have disdain for this because, you know, China is not the land of unrestrained capitalism. Um, and So the wedge theory is the only thing that they can hold on to because if you're going to say you're for peace, then you got to find a way to get the peace narrative in there, right? And that's where they hearken toward, well, Russia's not a threat. We need to to wage peace with Russia while being aggressive towards China. That's just the establishment talking. Uh, But libertarians who ascribe to that are no better, right? And, and And that's not an uncommon thing. So so thanks for that contribution. I mean, if there's any other callers, uh, please do come through. I'm going to stay on for a few more minutes. Um, but make sure, you know, before you leave here, if you're not subscribed to this podcast yet, do so. So you can get notifications when I come on. It's every Thursday at 1130. I mean, Thursday, what am I saying? Every Sunday at 1130 a.m. Eastern. And then I'll announce if there are other times when I'm coming on. So far, I've been keeping it to that. And then, um, of course, you know, definitely support me in other places. You see the Patreon link in my, um, you know, in my on the uh, podcast description and my profile description. And 
you know, definitely follow me other places, the left lens on YouTube, make sure you catch my videos. But with that said, um, I don't see any other callers in the queue just yet. So I'll just make some closing remarks on this topic at hand. You know, I think the callers made really good points about the dangers and the, the, the real threats that this po- anti-Asian racism poses. I'd like to reframe something that Sean said earlier, where he said, you know, we need to celebrate cultures. We need to make sure these cultures are more integrated. And I don't disagree with that. But I think something else we can celebrate is the struggle that the people of this region, the people of the Asia Pacific have been waging against imperialism for decades and decades and decades, right? For more than a century. Whether we're talking about the struggle of the people of the Philippines who have been resisting U.S. imperialism for nearly a decade, more than almost nearly a decade, and colonialism for longer than that. Whether we're talking about China, right? China right now leading the world in things like eliminating extreme poverty, pandemic containment, the fight against climate change. There's a lot to celebrate in terms of China's achievements. Vietnam, very similar, right? Vietnam's liberation movement, its struggle against imperialism has led to not just independence, but what really is a growing socialist economy where poverty is reducing each year where the infrastructure is becoming more sound and where relationships with China and other socialist countries are becoming more and more friendly. And this despite the fact that still to this day, Vietnam is pulling up landmines placed by the United States. The same goes for Laos, Cambodia, right? These countries still pulling up landmines that are exploding hundreds and thousands, you know, hundreds to thousands each year. But Vietnam's right victory in Laos, uh, successful socialist revolutions have led to really concrete improvements for the lives of the people there. And we can talk about, I mean, some people might not agree with me on this one, the DPRK and how the DPRK has survived sanctions and onslaught of terrorism, economic terrorism, but also the DPRK, the North of Korea. We're talking about a place that was leveled by U.S. bombs, carpet bombs, napalm, to the point where 70% of Pyongyang and much of the country was completely obliterated and 30% of the population was rendered homeless during the so-called war in Korea, the so-called quote-unquote forgotten war, which China participated in on the side of Korea. People may not remember that, but that solidarity existed. The Battle of the Yalu River, the Battle of Lake Changjin, uh, 1950 51 uh, definitely watched the battle of lake change in the movie it's an amazing movie but uh, it's on youtube you can see it i think that people have published it on there with uh, english subtitles so definitely check that out but it's another example right the dprk is an example of how people in resistance are surviving and attempting to chart a course for their own destiny and there have been achievements in the dprk too life has definitely improved there we look at life in 1950 to life now, just about literally being starved by the United States of most of the global market. Life has improved in the DPRK, and there have been many attempts to unify and to ease relations with South Korea, the so-called Republic of Korea, and it has not borne fruit because of U.S. interference and the U.S. occupation there. But 
there is resistance in this region. China is leading this resistance in its own way, but right, whether we're talking about Guam, Okinawa, I mean, we're talking about people in resistance. We should be celebrating that. And we should be standing on their side. We should not be standing on the side of any kind of Cold War, war of any kind. And that should be the lesson of anti-Asian racism, that we cannot stand on the side of war of any kind. And that we oppose racism on the basis that it's the only way to get to peace, or it's one of it's one of the most important uh, ways to get to peace is by opposing this racism and, and opposing the war that is fueling it. Because war, whether we're talking about uh, right, the callers said it right. War is a huge component of racism, and I've said it throughout this podcast, but. Whether we're talking about domestic internal wars, right, and the war on black people to keep them enslaved, to keep them oppressed, keep them exploited, racism is huge fuel uh, is fuel for that. Indigenous people similar, right? And then we talk about the wars abroad. That racism is very connected, and it's why you have such divided public opinions. Why you have it's one of the biggest reasons why you have people supporting or if not if not supporting but holding on and harboring such anti-china sentiment that they can't oppose right this new cold war it's a huge gap in the anti-war movement that i'm going to keep talking about right here on this podcast but with that said everyone i do have to go it was great to be with all of you today thank you for calling in for to those callers definitely uh, be sure to call in on the next episodes if you're able uh, be sure to subscribe to this podcast before you go if you're new to it. And be sure to support me, right? Link in the description. Be sure to find my work elsewhere on Twitter uh, at Spirit of Ho, Spirit of H-O. You know, be sure to find me on YouTube at The Left Lens. I'm writing columns on Substack, chroniclesofhaifong.substack.com. Find me, find me, find me. I am out there and I will be back here think uh, yeah, I think next week. All right. So salute to all of you and uh, take good care. And until next time, bye-bye.